chapter 5, back in the Beatitudes. And I call this one, Who's Hungry? Who's hungry? Blessed are those who hunger. You're hungry already? <laughs> Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're going to be hungry after we pack all that food back there, probably. I guarantee it. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount that we have just started, Jesus is describing to his disciples uh, the progression of what a citizen of the kingdom looks like. He's going to talk about the kingdom, but first he starts talking about a citizen of the kingdom and what his character looks like the longer he walks with the king. Uh, we started off with blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, blessed are those who have a proper understanding of how lost they are without the king, their need for forgiveness. Um, apart from the king, they are very, very lost. They're poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We can only enter the kingdom by humility. Uh, they realize their depravity, so it leads them to mourn, to mourn over their sin. Blessed are those who mourn, uh, because God promises that they will be comforted. They'll be able to rest in his forgiveness. Then once we have a proper perspective of who we are um, in relation to God's holiness, after we repent, then we can submit all of our strength to the king's purposes. We become meek, uh, not weak but we become meek. We become those who submit all of our strength, all of our purposes, all of our passion to the king so that he can use it. Um, and for those that are meek, we will inherit the land, or literally in the New Testament, we will inherit the promise, the promises of the Lord, those who yield all their strength. Um, Jesus will create a new heaven and a new earth, and he is going to give it to those who are meek those who are surrendered to his purpose so that he can use them. People spend so much time on this earth trying to build up their little kingdom, trying to build their kingdom on earth. But the problem is, it's all going to pass away. Like, we're not here long enough to live for our own glory. Our time here is too short to live for our own glory. Uh, Elon Musk is probably one of the richest and most well-known people on the planet today. And he is building quite an empire, but it ain't going to last. It's not going to last because our time here is so finite. Moses said in a psalm that he wrote, he said, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Basically, realize now that your time is short so that you can use it for something that matters. Realize what really matters. If you want to have an impact that outlives you, then paradoxically, you're going to have to submit your life to the one whose purposes are so much greater than you are. It's not about getting to the top, Jesus said. It's about becoming the servant of all. It's about surrendering to the king. And speaking of kings, there was a king in the Old Testament by the name of King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, most of you have heard of him. He ruled over a vast empire, some say the greatest empire in all of history. And in Daniel chapter 3, we learn that King Nebi had gotten super proud of himself. So much, though, that he built this enormous statue of himself. And he said, listen, everybody, I've got a rock band. And whenever you hear the music playing, you guys need to bow down to this statue, to this likeness of me. And you guys know the story. The three Jewish boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that wouldn't bow the knee 
when they heard the music, these are the ones that he said, throw them in the furnace, the fiery furnace. But Jesus was already in the furnace. He was already in there waiting for them, and he was the one who preserved them. A very cool analogy of what Jesus is going to do with the Jewish people during the tribulation, uh, but that is, that's a whole other message. I could talk about that today, but very cool analogy. Nebuchadnezzar is completely blown away, and he gives glory to God over this whole situation. He gives glory to God. He even made a decree that anybody that speaks against the God of the Hebrews, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you're going to be torn limb from limb, and then your house is going to be turned to rubble. He gives glory to God. He is humbled, but he's not meeked. He got humbled, but he didn't surrender himself to the Lord. And as time went on, pride began to creep back into his heart. And Daniel tells us that he was at ease and prospering in his castle when he had some visions. He had some dreams that troubled him greatly. So he calls for Daniel, Daniel the the head wise man, uh, second in line for the kingdom, only to King Nebuchadnezzar. He brings him in to interpret his dream. And Daniel says this, it wasn't good. It wasn't a good interpretation. And he warned the king. He said, judgment has come upon you, king, because of your pride. I'm going to read this. Daniel 4, 7. See if I can find it. I marked it for quick reading this morning. 427. This is what Daniel says to King Nebuchadnezzar. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, shall be given and shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And as you know, he gets turned into basically an animal. God drives him out into the field for seven years. It says that until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And we're seeing this today. Who rules the world? The most high rules. Daniel warned him to break off your sins, practice righteousness. But Nebuchadnezzar had become very self-righteous. He'd been very happy with himself. He was glorifying in himself and in the power that he had created, that he had amassed. There was an angel in heaven whose name meant star of the morning or literally bright one. That was his name, Lucifer. And he got to bask in the splendor of God's glory. But what he really wanted to do was overthrow God so that he could get the glory. He says this, he said, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. It's a lot of I wills trying to assert his will. His ambition was not to reflect the glory of God, but to overthrow his sovereign power and glory in himself. He wanted the praise and in his pride, he walked away from righteousness. 
Jesus told a parable that was real easy for the people to understand. Sometimes Jesus told parables and they kind of left people scratching their heads a bit. But this one was really easy to understand and it's easy for us to understand in our day too. And in Luke 12, he's trying to relay some of the concepts of the kingdom to his disciples and to the people around him. And he's talking about something very serious. He says, if you will acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. But if you deny me, if you pretend like you don't know me here, like, I'm going to pretend like I don't know you in that day. Like, when you die, when you stand before God, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father. And so he's relaying some pretty serious truths here, and somebody yells out from the back of the crowd, they said, Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. (laughs) Really? Like, Jesus is dropping some important truths, eternal life and eternal death. And here you got this guy in the back and he's ticked off about money. He's worried about inheritance. But lest we think that we're above that, how often are we worried or concerned about money, about bills, about relaxation, when our greatest concern should be, when was the last time that we prayed When was the last time that we were in the Word? When was the last time that we were in church? Not you guys, of course. (laughs) But Jesus takes this opportunity, this real-world scenario, to talk about ambition, which is really just another word for pride. In Luke 12, 15, it says, And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I got so much money, I don't know what to do with it. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards the Lord. He was rich, but not in the way that mattered. And since he was not rich towards the Lord, he forfeited both. He forfeited comfort eternally, and he forfeited comfort earthly, temporally. And the beatitude that we're talking about today is in greatest contrast to the common ambitions of men, which is to glorify themselves. Nebuchadnezzar hungered for power. Lucifer hungered for praise, and the farmer hungered for pleasure, for comfort. And when our desire is not to be right with God, we're not going to be satisfied. And that's what we're talking about today. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Uh, I didn't plan it this way. God planned it this way, which I think is really cool. That in a day where we're talking about hunger and thirst, we're actually taking up a collection of food for kids in need. I thought that was pretty neat the way God put that together. Um, And we showed that video last week and the lady said, most of us, and it's true, most of us haven't experienced real hunger. Like we've been hungry, but we haven't really been concerned about where our next meal is coming from. And we have some friends of ours who adopted a little girl from Haiti. And when they got her, um, they, she was really small. She was tiny because uh, she lacked good nutrition. She hadn't eaten a lot. And they said that they would find, when they were cleaning her room, they would find food that she had stashed away in her room 
because this was a real fear of hers. I mean, if we haven't experienced that kind of hunger, we can't understand. But if you have experienced that kind of hunger, it's a real fear. And it was always on her mind, this child of, I need to have food. I need to make sure that it's available. She was hungering in a great way. And hunger and thirst are the necessities of life. These are the things that drive us to stay alive, to have substance. And if you've ever done an extended fast of any kind, then you know that after three or four days, those hunger pains that you have um, of your stomach shrinking, they start to go away. And eventually they do go away. It's kind of a strange thing. After four or five days, you don't feel it anymore. And then you're not hungry. You still want to eat, but you're not hungry. And then about day 30, 35, right in there, we should all try it, right? Day 40, those hunger pangs start to come back. And when they do come back, that's your body telling you, you are on the edge of starvation. Like you're about ready to die. You need to eat something now. It's emergency time. Without food, we're going to die physically, but without righteousness, we will die spiritually. A hunger and thirst for righteousness will keep you alive spiritually. A starving person has a single all-consuming desire for food and water. Nothing else can capture their attention. Nothing else matters because if they don't eat, if they don't drink, it ain't going to matter anymore. So that's the thing that drives them. And this is the kind of hunger, this is the type of thirst that Jesus is talking about in this verse. It's something that is all-consuming. It's something that's always on your mind, constantly desiring righteousness and rightness with God and those around us. Those people who don't have God's righteousness are starved spiritually. But tragically, they don't have this natural desire for God and his righteousness as they do for the things that are material, the things of this world, the things that are going to be passing away. Our tendency as fallen human beings is to turn inward or to look for it in the world for our satisfaction. Uh, But ultimately, like the Rolling Stones said, I can't get any satisfaction. That was Mick Jagger, right, that said that? Can't get, I can't get no satisfaction. In Luke's gospel, we're giving an, an incredible illustration of the Father's love towards us and our need for him and for his righteousness. I never get tired of telling the story. Uh, a father had two sons. Uh, one was faithful. He did everything that his father asked him to do. And then one was rebellious. So rebellious that one day he went to his dad and he said, listen up, old man. I am sick of living under your roof. I'm tired of your rules. You don't know anything. I'm going to run my life the way I see fit. I'm out of here. So what I want you to do, I want you to give me my inheritance. Give me what's coming to me right now. Everything that you've worked so hard for, by the way. Give me my share because I'm out of here. You know the story. The dad lets him go. He goes to a far off land. And he wastes everything that he's been given. All the money, all the inheritance. He parties it up. He lives his best life. Isaiah 55.2 says, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? But that's exactly what the prodigal did. Once the money ran out, once all the so-called friends were gone, he had to hire himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And the phrase hired himself out literally means he had to join himself to that employer. He didn't just get a job. He was joined to the world. And he got a job feeding pigs. Jewish boy feeding pigs in a foreign land. Not a great job. 
Pigs weren't allowed in Israel. They were unclean. So here he is standing in the pig pen. And it says he comes to his senses and he starts to realize, wait a minute, I am dying here in the pig pen, slopping these things. This food looks pretty good to me. Even the slaves in my father's house, even the servants are better fed from this. They don't go hungry. I need to go back to my father. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to rehearse. I'm going to come up with a confession. I'm going to come up and I'm going to rehearse it. That way when I get there, I can, you know, say I'm sorry and maybe I'll be forgiven. Maybe he will let me be a servant. And he takes a big risk going home because back then, if you had a rebellious son as a parent, if you had a son who would not listen, who was constantly being disobedient and rebellious, you could drag him in front of the elders of the city and stone him. So he's taking a big risk, or so it would seem, going back home. Now we have one of the best illustrations in the Bible, the father. The father has been looking out for his son every single day. Every day he would go out and he would scan the horizon looking for his son. And today's the day. Today's the day that he sees him and he takes off running for his son. Now, this would have been very undignified in that day. Fathers, patriarchs, did not run. Uh, these guys didn't do physical labor. They tended to be a little bit bigger because of that. They enjoyed their life. They wore long flowing robes. They wore sandals. They did not do things like running. But he runs all the way out there. I can't imagine what his son must have been thinking as his dad is running towards him. But he falls on his neck and it says that he is kissing him and he's hugging him and he's crying. He's weeping that his son has come home. He's literally hanging on him. And, you know, a lot of Bible scholars see this as not only affection, but also protection. Protection, because if somebody else had found him first, they might have done him in. This rebellious son who had gone away and dishonored his father. The son was hungering and thirsting for the things of the world, but they didn't satisfy. Philippians 3, 18 and 19 says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. How many things that used to be shameful do people glory in these days? What he had been following was a craving for the carnal, not a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. His God was his belly, and we see that throughout our culture today. Uh, People are spending their money on things that aren't bread. They're spending their money, their time, their possessions on things that don't satisfy, things that they think are going to fill that void in their life. They don't have a desire to be right with God. Um, They have a desire to be right. Uh, They want their version of rightness to be validated, but they don't have a desire for righteousness. They're passionate about what they think is right, their version of the truth. Do you see the story in the news this week about um, Colombia, right? And abortion was uh, a crime in Colombia, and they decriminalized it this week. And you had all these pictures of women out in the streets just cheering and weeping for joy that now they had the opportunity to end their pregnancy, to terminate this, to, um, you know, have that option of convenience in their lives. I just don't get it. I see those mobs, those, you know, crowds, those pictures uh, when this happens, and I just don't get it. Their version of right. This is what I think is right. My rights. They believe they're right, but they're going to find themselves standing in the pig pen. There's only one thing that will satisfy the prodigal's hunger, 
And it'll only be satisfied when he returns to the Father. He starts hungering for the right thing, and then he's satisfied. And what happened was completely different than he thought was going to happen. He thought he could just be a servant in his father's house, but he is reinstated. His father his father doesn't even listen to his confession. He starts in with how sorry he is. His father doesn't even listen to him. He turns around, and he yells to the house, bring the robe, bring the best robe, bring the best sandals, put a ring on his finger. He is immediately reinstated the moment he comes back to his father. Why is that significant? Isaiah 61.10 says that, For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. The Father is waiting. He's ready to give you a robe of righteousness if you hunger for it. We have to hunger, but it's, it's not about working for it. Don't understand. We don't earn our salvation, but we do need a longing for righteousness, for sin to be replaced with virtue, for disobedience to be replaced with obedience. People are prone to take the things that God has given us, whether that's possessions or freedom or knowledge or money, and spend it on every form of self-satisfaction to satisfy themselves. But unlike the prodigal, most of them are content to stay in that far-off land, away from the promises, away from the benefits and the blessings that God offers. And we're warned multiple times over and over not to love the things of this world, the things that are passing away. John tells us, 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If, anything, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it is in the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This beatitude, um, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, is really the first one that's a positive. The other three that we've covered so far have been essentially negative. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit involves death to self. Blessed are those who mourn. Those who mourn over their sins, that involves confronting your sinfulness. Blessed are the meek. Those you have to surrender. You have to surrender your rights. You have to surrender your strength, your power. To God's control. But this fourth one is positive, and it's a result of the other three. When you do the other three, then you have a desire. You're given a desire, a uh, hunger, and a thirst for righteousness. The more we put aside what we have, the more we desire what God has. The Bible teacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said, if this verse to you is one of the most blessed statements in all of Scripture, you can be certain that you're a Christian. But if it's not, then you'd better examine the foundations. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The one who does not hunger and thirst for rightness with God does not have a place in his kingdom. That only makes sense. You can't be a citizen if you don't want to be right with the king. To have his hunger is to have his life inside of us. The desire of more of his likeness. When you're in a relationship at the beginning, um, it's exciting. It's all consuming. It's all you think about. When am I going to talk to that person next? When am I going to see them, be with them? There's a desire to be with them more. And as that relationship grows, as it deepens, as it matures, there is a devotion there. It becomes very natural. My natural desire is to be with that person, to spend time with them. When I'm not with them, I'm not right. I feel sad when I'm not with them. It is now a very natural part of who I am because you prefer them over everyone else. 
Do we prefer Jesus over the things of this world? Do we have a desire to spend time with him in his word, in prayer? Is there a closeness there between us and the Lord? There was a couple who had just uh, celebrated their anniversary, um, 25th anniversary. We're going to celebrate our 25th anniversary this year. Um, And they were driving home, and they had just had an enjoyable evening. And so the wife is sitting on her her side of the car, and the husband is behind the steering wheel on his side. And she looks over at him, and she says, honey, do you remember? She kind of has an ache in her voice. Do you remember how nice it used to be? We used to sit so close to each other in the car back when they had bench seats. I had a truck that had a bench seat. That was awesome. And he says, without hesitation, he says, well, honey, I'm not the one who moved. I've been sitting here all along in the same spot. You're the one who moved. Our tendency is to drift if we are not intentional. If we're not cultivating a hunger for the Lord, we will drift. And the world is overflowing with things ready to take his place, ready to distract us, ready to try to fill that void if we let it. Jesus is using the strongest and the deepest impulses in this natural realm to represent the desire that those who are called to God should have for him and for his righteousness. It really is a huge mystery that a great dissatisfaction can create a supernatural satisfaction, a dissatisfaction with ourselves. Um, Not only a desire for rightness, you know, vertically with God, but also a dissatisfaction with all of the unrighteousness that we witness all around us with all of the things in the world that are not right. And we're seeing that on display right now more than ever. We need to have a desire for God and a shunning of the things of this world. And the problem is generally that we're too full of ourselves or we're too full of the things that the world offers to have an appetite for the Lord. A lot of people don't mind snacking on God. They don't mind, you know, having a little bit of God in their lives. Alicia could be at home making an awesome meal. But if I stop off at Taco Bell on the way home and have a couple of chalupas, I'm not going to be, she could be making my favorite meal, but I'm not going to be hungry by the time I get home. A friend of mine was telling me a story about a road trip that he took once. And if you've taken some road trips, this has happened to you too. He was getting really hungry. And when you're on the road and you're on a long road trip and you're really hungry, you're waiting for that exit, right? That exit that has something that you really want. And nothing was looking good. It was like, you know, truck stop Wendy's and things like that. He didn't want to eat that. He was waiting for something good. And as time went on, he began to realize there ain't much coming. So he sees an exit. It's got a McDonald's. He's like, fine, I'll pull off. Has a burger. Hits the road. And this has happened to me. You get a couple miles down the road. Oh, there's the exit. There's a Chipotle or whatever it was. For him, it was an In-N-Out burger. That was his favorite fast food restaurant to eat out, In-N-Out Burger. And he's just bummed because, you know, he had just filled up on McDonald's. But he took the exit anyway. (laughs) And he pulls over at the top of the exit, no joke, and he does a return to sender. He makes himself throw up on the side of the road. I know, it's gross. He gets rid of the junk so that he can enjoy what he really wants. That's a terrible, that's, that's disgusting. But it's a good illustration 
<laughs> of where our hunger can drive us to unrighteous places like McDonald's. Unrighteous places. When we need to be eating, we need to be feeding on things that are going to lead us towards righteousness. We may feel full, but we're not satisfied. We may be full of the things in the world, but it's not going to satisfy. We need his righteousness. Uh, in our small group Thursday night, we've been going through the 23rd Psalm. Most of you are familiar with that. Um, but the book that we're going through, that we're reading through, was written by a guy who used to be a shepherd. He used to have a sheep ranch. And so he writes it from a very unique perspective. And it's very humbling to hear a lot of the similarities between sheep and people. Uh, sheep aren't that smart. They're pretty dumb. Um, and as people, like we get called sheeple for a reason. Sometimes we do stupid things. We have wrong desires. Um, and the section that we talked about this last week was, he makes me lie down in green pastures. And that is a perfect picture of contentment and satisfaction when a sheep is laying down in greed pastures because they're very hard to satisfy. There has to be certain conditions that are met for a sheep to be able to lay down. And it was interesting because he said sheep thrive best in areas that are dry, in areas that are arid, which doesn't sound right. When I think of sheep, I think of like the shire, you know. Uh, but when David is writing this psalm, you know, if you've taken a look at the Middle East, it's pretty brown. There's not a lot of green out there, not a lot of good pasturing. But it took skill for a shepherd to know where the good grazing places were that were few and far between. He had to know how to cultivate the land. He had to clear it of rocks, clear it of tree stumps, sow good seeds so that his sheep could have good pasturing, fertile land for his flock. Green pastures in the middle of desert places took a lot of work on the part of the shepherd to make sure certain requirements were met so that his sheep could lie down in good, in past, in good pasture. They're very hard to please, sheep are. And when they're eating junk, they'll eat just about anything. They're not as bad as goats are, but they'll eat a lot of junk. And when they do, they don't get full. And they're constantly on their feet looking for nutrition. And in that, when that happens, they don't lay down. They don't put on weight like they're supposed to. They get sick, all kinds of things in their search for satisfaction. But the sheep that have a wise shepherd can eat well and they can rest because the shepherd has provided exactly what they need. They can be satisfied. When the prodigal was hungry, the corn cobs looked pretty good. But when he was starving, he went back to the father. That's where he was satisfied. We can't fill up on the junk food of the world and expect to have an appetite for the Lord. It just doesn't work. If we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we'll be filled. Um, will be. There is a condition there. God will fill. He will satisfy us, but we have to desire it. We have to be hungry for it. We have to pursue right living. Psalms 107 verse 9 says that he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. When Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, at Jacob's well, uh, an ancient well that was still producing, uh, the woman there, Jesus is talking to, and he said, you know, anyone who drinks of this water, as good as it is, is going to thirst again. But if anyone drinks of the water that I give him, he'll never thirst again. In fact, it'll become a well bubbling up within him, eternal life. We get so fixated on, you know, the here and now the things that are going to fade away, when we are being called into the eternal. That's what we're being invited into, his righteousness. After Jesus fed the 5,000, those people were satisfied physically. They were stuffed. It says they took up baskets 
They, left, they had leftovers after Jesus provided for the 5,000. Everybody ate till they were stuffed. And so at that point, they wanted to make him king. They're like, are you kidding? A leader who gives free stuff to his people? That sounds pretty awesome. Let's make him king. But Jesus knew that their desires didn't go past their stomachs. Listen to what Jesus tells them in John 6, starting at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered him, this is the work of God, that you believe him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven, gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Jesus offers us himself, but people rarely have an appetite for him. They're satisfied with their things that they've surrounded themselves with, or they're satisfied in themselves. They don't mind snacking on God, but they don't want all of God. If we make no provision for the flesh, as Paul writes, if we don't make provision for the flesh to feast upon, we can develop that appetite uh, and we'll be satisfied. Um, Going back to our our study from Thursday night, uh, sheep being very restless animals, uh, if they're not well fed, they're restless and they will wander around. And we see people every single day that are restless, going from one place to the next, trying to fill up that void in their life with thing after thing, but it's not going to satisfy. Uh, Only God offers us what's going to completely satisfy. He's already made provision for us. The person who hungers and thirsts for God's righteousness will have a continual longing for him. Nathan, I thought you said we'll be satisfied. Yes, we will be satisfied. Um, I love cherry cobbler and blueberry cobbler and blackberry. Any kind of cobbler. I'm a big fan of cobbler. And I will eat it until I am stuffed, until I am satisfied. Um, but here's the thing, even when I'm, I know that I'm going to desire cobbler again, there's never going to be a time where I don't desire cobbler. <laughs> and that's kind of how our Christian faith is going to be. We should have a continual desire. Yes, I feel full of the spirit of God right now, but you know what? I'm still going to desire him. I'm still going to have a longing for him and for his righteousness. We won't be completely satisfied until we get to the other side of eternity. We must not be satisfied in ourselves. Uh, Paul writes in Romans 7, he says, Who will free me from this body of death? Who will free me from this body of death? I am sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm sick of sin. I desire to be right both physically and spiritually. Then he answers his own question uh, when he says, Jesus will free me. Who will free me? Jesus will free me. And what does he free us from? He frees us from all the external things that we think are the source of true happiness. A hungry man can't be satisfied with flowers. That's not going to satisfy. Sorry. (laughs) 
Only God can satisfy a person's hunger for righteousness. Okay, we're almost done. Um, Our basic food as a Christian is God's word. Uh, Paul calls it the milk and the meat of the word. That is our food. And we should crave time in the word. You don't have to persuade a hungry man to eat. He's hungry. He's going to eat. If you hunger for righteousness, you will read his word. And feeding on the word increases our desire for it. Read your Bible and you will hear words that speak to you personally and specifically and will create in you a hunger for righteousness. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers in the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We're partakers in righteousness, partakers in the divine nature through Jesus Christ. But you, if you want it, it's going to be in his word. He reveals himself in the word. All right. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 19. This is what we're going to finish up with. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The word is righteous. The word is right. It is perfect. It's going to revive and it's going to restore you from the inside out. You're going to have an ongoing desire for more when we get into his word. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The word sure here in this context is solid. The testimony of the Lord is solid. And the word simple here in this context means open-minded. Now, open-mindedness in our culture is seen as a great virtue to be open-minded, but it leads us down all kinds of wrong paths. The secular would say that the Bible is too narrow-minded. But we are called to be those who are narrow-minded. Jesus said, narrow is the way that leads to life, and few are those that find it. But the road to destruction is wide. Jesus gave us one way to him. I'm so glad that he gave us one way. Look at all the ways that Satan has tried to deceive people through the years, saying this is a way that you can get to heaven. Because if Jesus had said, here's five ways to get to heaven, Satan would have come up with thousands more to try to deceive people. But he made it easy. He gave us one way. Spiritual life or righteousness goes through the narrow gate. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Studying your Bible will make your heart happy as you read through the promises of the Lord. It's pure and it'll enlighten your eyes. There's lots of things out there today that are going to pollute our eyes all the time. Like you don't even have to try. It's just out there and it's going to pollute your eyes. But reading over God's commandments, the promises in his word are going to help us see clearly. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. When we read the scriptures, uh, we will develop a holy fear of God that lasts and will instill in you, in me, a desire for truth and righteousness. I'm sure most of you have been following the Major League Baseball labor disputes. It's very troubling. If they don't reach an agreement by the end of the day tomorrow, they're already missing preseason games. They're going to miss regular season games here pretty soon. It's very depressing. 
But when we look at professional athletes, a lot of times they become so well paid, right? They become so well off. We say they start to lose a hunger for the game, for their desire to win. But those that are in the minor leagues, those people that haven't been established yet, they don't make the big bucks. They say they are hungry for it. They give 100% all the time. They have what Apollo Creed would call the eye of the tiger, right? They're hungry. Jesus wasn't saying, blessed are those who are kind of concerned in a cavalier way that they might grow in righteousness. He is pronouncing a blessing on those who are hungry for it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's their passion. Too often we're conditioned to define ourselves by our accomplishments and not by our character. But Jesus pronounced blessing on this character trait. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsting after righteousness. He affirmed that this hunger would not be fruitless, that we would be satisfied. In the final analysis, gang, we want the approval of God. The approval, the applause of the world can be deafening at times. And it can cause us to turn our attention to accomplishing things that are very much against what God made the priority to be, which is righteousness. That's the priority for his people. And being righteous really isn't all that complicated. It's just doing what is right. Desiring what is right, both in ourselves and in the world. We need to have a passion for that. And I think now more than ever what we see, um, things are very wrong in the world than one and people have a desire now for things to be right and really know how things should be but they know that now and the way that it is isn't as it should be Uh, but as his believers we need to be those that are bold to show people what is right what righteousness looks like and then it's found in his word